Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. The opioid epidemic continues to ravage communities across the country. Fentanyl has been a problem for years. The highly addictive and extremely potent substance is often mixed with heroin and has led to more overdoses. Now, drug enforcement and public health experts are sounding the alarm about another drug, veterinary tranquilizer xylazine. It's now being mixed with fentanyl, and it's linked with a wave of overdoses in Cook County and other communities around the country. Here to tell us more is WBEZ data editor Matt Kiefer. He recently published a story on the issue. Also with us is Dr. David Ansel, professor of medicine at Rush University Medical Center and author of the book The Death Gap, How Inequality Kills. Matt, those who are familiar with the name xylazine, they know that it's designed to sedate horses and other farm animals. So tell us more about the drug and specifically how it's being used by people. Right. Unfortunately, it is being found in these cocktails, uh, fentanyl, xylazine mixtures that folks may or may not even be aware that they're ingesting it, either through pill or injection form. And ultimately, as a tranquilizer, it's not an opioid. It works differently. It has different effects, and it can create a more deadly combination. We're seeing that, unfortunately, in the Cook County Medical Examiner data, where folks who have died of drug overdoses come back positive for um, xylazine in addition to fentanyl. Mm. So you you actually reviewed medical examiner records in Cook County regarding xylazine. Tell us more about what you find out and specifically who is being impacted. Yeah, so it starts in 2018 when there was only a single overdose that involved xylazine and it crept up into the 30s in 2019 and 2020. In 2021, it shot up to 110 deaths. Last year, there was nearly a 50% increase. So I'm throwing a lot of numbers at you here, but it was 161 deaths that involved xylazine in Cook County last year. Last year, year when it was just one in 2018. Right. So you can see how fast this is approaching. And in addition to that, we have a total in the story of 353 deaths that involve xylazine. I just ran the numbers before I stepped into the studio here. It's up to 360 now. So just in the space of a couple of weeks, we have seven more, more fatalities deaths. listed there. Doctor, this is a good time to bring you in. First, I'm, I'm curious your reaction to here we have yet another substance making its way into the illegal drug market. Yeah, well, I you know, it's disturbing. I know in Philadelphia, 90 percent of the fentanyl uh, has xylazine in it. So I think what we're seeing here is the sort of tip of the iceberg uh, uh, of that, I, you know, recently I had a patient. She didn't die with xylazine, but a patient of mine for 25 years, you know, in her 60s, who died of a fentanyl overdose. And so that's the we had the the fentanyl, uh, you know, story here, which is really deadly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now you have xylazine uh, on top of it. And the you know the disturbing thing about xylazine is that it's really not an opioid. It's more of a tranquilizer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Narcan, which is used for opioids doesn't really work. Uh, so there's not uh, a, a good treatment for it. And it's illegal. It's a veterinary substance. It's not uh, not banned. But if you look at the neighborhoods that are most affected, there are the neighborhoods that have been most affected by all causes of uh, premature mortality. And if we see post-COVID, mm-hmm. or that not only did we see COVID deaths, we saw a rise in heart disease deaths, 
and overdose deaths. And this is just another piece to the story. You mentioned Narcan there. As we know, there's there's been a push to expand access to naloxone. Um, it can reverse the effects from opioids, but as you mentioned, Narcan can't reverse the, the xylazine overdose. I'm curious if it'll work, though, if xylazine is, is mixed with an opioid like fentanyl. It will work for the opioid, but not for the but xylazine. But still not for the xylazine. Yes. Okay. And I think the problem is it's uh, sedative, and uh, in the combination is, uh, of course, of course, is deadly. And, of, and there's an additional problem is that when injected, it can cause necrosis uh, of, the, of the limbs. Um, you know, I think when you look at these deaths and the cumulative deaths from— uh, uh, overdoses, uh, uh, heart disease, cancer. You know, there's been this post-pandemic rise in mortality in the United States and Chicago in, in particular has not seen the bounce back that was seen in Europe with uh, life expectancy. So you have to look at these things as signals of the underlying conditions mm-hmm. uh, in neighborhoods. And, you know, we've got to take sort of the short-term view. There's got to be a response uh, to this crisis while we're also looking at long-term solutions, which are ultimately building up sort of the economic well-being uh, and access to care of all sorts in these neighborhoods. Speaking of a response, Matt, what are we hearing from public officials? Well, specifically, the prevention measures is probably the most important at this point. Uh, Folks who are using drugs habitually, at the very least, uh, ought to find out a little bit more about what it is that they're ingesting. And so for that reason, there's been pilot projects to come up with testing strips that would show someone whether or not the substance that they're using tests positive for xylazine. And what we're seeing now is a rollout of those of those testing strips, or that's anticipated to come in the next few weeks. I spoke over the weekend with Taylor Wood from Chicago Recovery Alliance, mm-hmm. who indicated they have on-site testing, but they also have some leftover testing strips from the field testing that they've been doing, and they anticipate getting another round of testing strips in the next few weeks. And so those could be distributed to folks who are using drugs to find out whether or not what they have actually contains xylazine or not. Mm. Doctor, some House Republicans, uh, they've asked the Federal Drug Enforcement Agency to to schedule xylazine as a controlled substance, meaning, of course, uh, it would criminalize distribution for human use. Is that going to make a difference in decreasing deaths? I think, you know, addiction is a terrible disease. Uh, And, uh, you know, when people are addicted, they must get their next uh, drug some some way, somehow. And, of course, the opioid uh, uh, problem and the addiction rate uh, epidemic in this country uh, is not going to go away soon. Uh, so we uh, that might put a little dent in it, but it hasn't really stopped the fentanyl uh, growth uh, or the other drugs, uh, heroin and uh, cocaine and other things that are scheduled as well. But, uh, of course, the veterinarians oppose it because... It's quite helpful uh, for large animals uh, and such. But I think you know anything we can do uh, uh, to address this. But in the, in the long run, we've got to make it uh, uh, safe for people with addictions to get access to drugs uh, safely. Uh, we got to decriminalize uh, addiction, more treatment, but also dealing with the longer-term uh, economic impacts mm-hmm. uh, that are necessary in these communities. It's no surprise that West Garfield Park, uh, an area where Rush and uh, partnered with the the Garfield Park Right to Wellness Collaborative, New Mount Pilgrim Church, and others are building a a wellness village, is the epicenter on the west side uh, for addiction as well. And so we've got to think ahead, particularly with the Brandon Johnson administration, of what does 
real uh, economic uh, development and community uh, wealth building look like? Because without those longer-term strategies, we have mm-hmm. to treat addiction. We need more programs. We need these longer-term strategies. And I think the Sankofa Wellness Village in Garfield Park that we're planning is one of those sort of holistic approaches to community well-being uh, and uh uh, wealth and health building at the same time. Yeah, uh, and we picked Garfield Park in particular because it's been the hardest hit uh, by uh, opioid overdoses. Yeah, Garfield Park um, and Humboldt Park yeah. uh, as well, um, and in Sankova well- Wellness Village, as you mentioned, there we've had them on the program before. They're of course the winners of the ten million dollar Chicago Prize. Right, and um, it's a different way of looking at solving some of these intransient problems, not to say recovery is really important, but we've got to have a longer view uh, because on every every cause of death, Garfield Park and Humboldt Park light up. And so we could talk about uh, opioid and xylazine this week and heart disease the next week, but these longer-term solutions, I think, are, are necessary, not just in Garfield Park, but across the city. We did win the Chicago Prize and it's an unusual coalition that's getting at not just health, but mm-hmm. wellness and well-being. Yeah, you've been working with the group, right? Yes. Yeah. So we've been talking here in, in this conversation, Doctor, uh, with you and, and Matt, specifically about Cook County. Opioid addiction, though, as I, I mentioned early on, it's this is a nationwide issue, right? You know, uh, I mentioned before how life expectancy in the United States did not bounce back after COVID as it did in all the other developed countries. Yeah. And part of the reason is, is we had a pre-existing uh, problem with dropping life expectancy in the United States. And it was largely driven uh, by uh, large numbers of white people without college degrees dying across the country. And, of course, when it happens to white people, they, the economists call them diseases of despair. Mm-hmm. Overdoses, like we we're speaking about today, uh, but also... Um, alcoholism, and uh, uh, heart disease as well. So the while COVID captured all of our attention over the last few years, in Chicago and around the country, uh, we've seen drops in life expectancy driven by these other causes, heart disease, cancer, accidents, overdoses, like we're speaking about today, uh, as well as homicide. And uh, I think it reflects the, uh, something that poverty itself uh, is a cause of premature mortality. An article in JAMA last week would mm-hmm. be ranked number four in mortality. If we don't address these underlying conditions that have led people to despair in Garfield Park or in the southeast of this country, yeah. we're never going to get to the overarching solutions. We are the wealthiest country in the world. We have the most money in our health care system, and literally people are dying uh, uh, in the streets of many different things. Yeah. And it's not just on the west side of Chicago. The doctor mentioned some racial demographics there, Matt. I know you combed through a lot of numbers. Can you share some some more on, on what you saw? Yeah, unfortunately, when it came to xylazine specifically, the rates of those who were impacted mirrored pretty much exactly what you see in the larger picture of the opioid epidemic, which is that in Cook County, uh, relatively recently, only in the last couple of years, uh, we've sort of observed this threshold where the majority, uh, over 50 percent of decedents um, from overdose uh, are black. And so we're seeing the same thing in xylazine. It's almost the exact same number, and mm. uh, which due to the fact that xylazine uh, overdoses uh, almost always in, in, in every single case are tagged as opioid related. So they're you know part of the same set 
Um, xylazine accounts for roughly like 8% of all uh, opioid deaths at this point So uh, in, in Cook County. And so we're seeing this trend where um, in, in both you know xylazine and the, the larger opioid epidemic where um, black residents are accounting for way more than the population would suggest. Cook County is 22% black and they have over 50% of opioid deaths. Wow. And so uh, this is important to really understand that race itself is just a social construct in a, how structural racism actually kills. Uh, and that's why we've got to really, you know, get to the some of these underpinnings. You know, you look at a neighbor like Garfield Park, the lowest life expectancy county in the United States is the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, where the uh, Sioux Nation uh, lives. And Garfield Park has about the same life expectancy as Pine Ridge. And, and, it's, and you cannot have that sort of concentrated uh, uh, concentration of poverty uh, and not bring resources to it mm-hmm. uh, and expect to get different outcomes. And again, that's why as we, I'm, you know, I'm at Rush University Medical Center and we thought about solutions to this problem, we can lever- how do we leverage our economic engine as a, as a giant employer uh, in, you know, in healthcare mm-hmm. to help a community like Garfield Park? And I think this is the kind of, we have to now, we have to sort of solve the immediate problem of harm to uh, people. But we have to understand how structural racism uh, enhances the impact of oh, yeah, poverty. It plays a huge part, for it, sure. Yeah. What are you going to be following as this story you know, moves forward here, Matt? Well, we're continuing to look at the evolving um, demographics, as we've just discussed. Also, as new substances come online, that's actually something that can be detected pretty easily in the Cook County Medical Examiner data. So that's that's worth taking a look at. We're also knocking on the door, unfortunately, of nearly um, 2,000 annual deaths in Cook County from, yeah. from opioid overdose. My goodness. And it's it's slowing down. But as we as, uh, as we see these demographics uh, shifting in terms of who is most impacted and where, uh, that's something to keep an eye on as well. Mm-hmm. Well, doctor, leave us with this. Folks listening to us right now, some might want to help, right? They want to help their communities that are impacted by the opioid epidemic. What do you suggest they do? Well, I think almost anyone right now has to carry naloxone with them because you can drive anywhere uh, and see uh, an overdose. Understand that if somebody does not respond, or if she called 911, that it could be xylazine as well. And we need more, uh, you know, the Chicago Recovery Alliance, Night Ministry. There's some great organizations to support financially. I do want to point out Dr. Neeraj Chabra of Cook County Health, who, who was one of the first people to raise the alarm on, on this. He's a toxicologist over yeah. there. We have a lot. So I just think awareness, support these organizations financially, mm-hmm. uh, and you can do carry naloxone. You never know where you're going to be, yeah. uh, and naloxone can save, uh, uh, save a life. And if someone doesn't respond— you think it's you know, it could xylazine. Be else. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, the best thing we can do is save lives while investing in the future. Great suggestions. Dr. Ansel is a professor of medicine at Rush University Medical Center, also author of The Death Gap, How Inequality Kills. Matt Kiefer is our data editor here at WBEZ. Thank you both. Thank you, Sasha. It's estimated that around 7 million people in the U.S. are diagnosed with opioid use disorder, or OUD, and overdoses continue to rise in communities across the country. 
Despite this, a new study from Northwestern reveals that many Medicaid enrollees who could benefit from residential treatment or rehab for substance abuse are unable to access care. To learn more about the study, we're speaking to the author, Lindsay Allen, health economist and assistant professor of emergency medicine at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. And Vana Hernandez, executive director of Phoenix House. That's a long-term substance use recovery home on the west side of Chicago. Now, Professor, before we get to the study, can you define what you mean by residential treatment? What does that look like? Yeah, absolutely. So residential treatment is what you think of when you think of rehab. Someone's going into rehab and they're going to be there for 28 days or so. Yeah. And so you go there, you stay uh, day and night. And then you take part in whatever treatment is offered there during the day. It's importantly a drug-free environment to really help support people in their road to recovery. And Vana, I want to be clear on what you do because Phoenix House, it serves as the next leg in the journey for, for someone who is seeking recovery, right? So just break down the difference for us between that immediate treatment and what long-term facility care looks like. Sure, sure. So recovery homes are part of the continuum of care. When somebody leaves that 28-day program, a lot of times they go right back into the same environment that they came out of, which is not conducive to recovery. Because, mm-hmm. reco- I mean, they're free to go, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So a recovery home can be the next step um, where they're there 24 hours a day. Um, they attend outpatient treatment. They have groups and uh, where they learn recovery education, relapse prevention, how to develop a recovery network, as well as life skills, which help them get back into society, mm-hmm. job training programs, um, anger management, all those types of things that help them to sustain I their see. recovery. So, Professor, the study is looking at residential treatment use by Medicaid enrollees in nine states. So first, why Medicaid? Medicaid actually pays a lot of money in terms of substance use treatment. So they're responsible for a fifth of all of the spending on substance use treatment in the U.S. So it's really important for us to know kind of where those dollars are going and how they're being spent. So that's why we decided to focus on Medicaid enrollees. And why was it important, you think, to compare across states? So if you've seen one Medicaid program, you've seen exactly one Medicaid program. And so every state treats substance use residential treatment differently. And so we wanted to make sure that we were standardizing data across all of these states so that we could make a real apples-to-apples comparison so that people can start understanding what their benchmark is. So you can – residential treatment is controversial still, even though we know that it works. Why? So What are the arguments on both sides? There are arguments on both sides because there are two different types, two broad different types of residential treatment. There's one that's evidence-based and there's one that's not so evidence-based. And so if you're going to be paying for residential treatment, you want to ensure that you're paying for the one that works best. And that is evidence-based treatment that includes things like medication for opioid use disorder, for example. And so when we're talking about the different state environments, some states are more supportive of paying for that residential treatment, and some are less supportive. And it's important that we're all looking at the same data baseline so we can put the the controversy aside and just look at the numbers and see what's actually occurring. Mm. And in the study, you, you talk about how for a, a long time, 
receiving uh, residential treatment wasn't covered by Medicaid. Mm-hmm. So w- why was that? Was that sort of because of that debate that you just sort of explained? Or Yeah, that and some other reasons. So, so there's this stigma about substance use. And we seem to think of it as a moral failing when it's not. It's a chronic disease, just like diabetes or heart disease, and it needs to be treated according to a medical model of addiction treatment. And so because we seem to think that people who uh, do drugs are somehow less than, okay, we end up treating them outside of the medical system, and we need to be merging what we know about how to medically and effectively treat these individuals and bringing that, merging that into the recovery infrastructure. And so when we, um, when we, that we kind of see this discrepancy and the stigma happening is with something called the IMD exclusion. IMD stands for Institutions for Mental Disease. Okay. And you can probably guess just by the way that that's phrased that it's an incredibly outdated term. It's this rule or this law that that the federal government has had in place since the 60s saying that Medicaid isn't allowed to cover residential treatment in facilities that are larger than 16 beds. And so that's one of the reasons that a lot of Medicaid oh. agencies couldn't cover this. It was it was literally against the law. And so in recent years, we've started seeing a lot, but not all, states get what's called an 1115 uh, waiver. Okay? And they're able to start covering um, residential treatment through that waiver. It kind of grants them an exception mm, from that okay. larger law. I'm going to get your perspective on this piece, Vana. You know, as someone running a treatment facility, I mean, why would Medicaid not cover either immediate or long-term treatment? That's a great question. So again, we are not a treatment facility. We're a state-licensed recovery home. And Medicaid does not cover recovery homes at this time. And they should. Um, There have been studies that show that recovery homes, that continuation, uh, continuum of care, including recovery homes, is highly effective. Um, people in recovery homes are more likely to maintain their recovery um, compared to individuals who only receive treatment. Um, So absolutely, they should pay for um, recovery home services as well. So tell us more about your findings, Professor, as you compared the different states. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's a couple of findings that we thought were really important. So you mentioned comparing the states. So we looked at both the individual state rates and then average across all of those states. And we found that only 7% of individuals with opioid use disorder were actually getting admitted to residential treatment. And then kind of across the states, we saw that that number varied from almost 0% all the way up to about 15% in the state that had the, the highest rate. Mm. Um, I think that points to the fact that there's a lot that can be done. States have a lot of discretion in what they can do to get those numbers up, and we're seeing that variety borne out in the numbers. I think the second thing that we saw that we think is really important is who's getting care. And so we see that among those who are getting care, they tend to be individuals who are white, non-Hispanic or who are non-Hispanic white, who are male, younger, not living in rural areas. And so that's great because that does in a lot of ways match 
who has opioid use disorder today, but it does not match what we're seeing in terms of the trends. And so we see that older individuals, black men, their rates of overdosing on opioids are skyrocketing at a much faster rate than the people that are getting really? treatment. Yep. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just joining us, we're talking about a recent study from Northwestern University that looked at the use of residential treatment, sometimes called rehab, by Medicaid recipients across different states. Now, it found that just a small percentage access that care, despite it being the most effective form of treatment, one of the most effective forms of treatment. So with me now in studio is one of the authors of the study. That's Lindsay Allen. She's an assistant professor at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. And we're also talking with Vana Hernandez, who's executive director of Phoenix House, a long-term substance use recovery home on the west side of Chicago. Uh, so Vana, beyond Medicaid, not covering the expense uh, of treatment, talk about some of the other barriers that are preventing folks from receiving care for addiction? Sure. I think a huge part of that is just education, knowing that these options are out there for them. Um, When I read the study, I was amazed uh, such a small percentage of people are actually getting the the care that they need. Um, And one thought that came to mind is, are we meeting people where they are, right? Are we going to the places where they are so they can Um, be informed about the options that are there for them. Um, And I think there needs to be a huge shift in perception, as you spoke to a little bit, Lindsay, Mm -hmm. about people with substance use disorder or opioid use disorder. Um, It is a disease, right? And there are options out there for people. There is medication-assisted recovery or treatment, as some people call it. Um, We need to change our perceptions about that. It's effective. It works. And it will enable people with opioid use disorder to focus on the other areas of their life once that physical piece is taken care of. Um, Once they're stabilized medically on the medication, and I think we should look at it as any other medication. We don't uh, stigmatize people who take insulin for diabetes. Why should we stigmatize people who take medication for their recovery? Um, uh, And then that will enable them to focus on rebuilding their lives, reentering society. It could be such a cost savings to both the healthcare profession, to the criminal justice system, uh, if perceptions were changed about these types of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other thing I wanted to mention as well, which can be a little bit controversial, is overdose prevention sites. You know, there's been a lot of talk about these. There's one in um, New York right now that is very successful because people uh, think of these places where as places where it's safe for people to use drugs or consume drugs, and that is not the case at all. It's a place where people are able to have their lives saved and also get the introduction or the education about the services. There are people right there when they have that moment where they say, okay, I'm ready, I want to get some help. There are people right there that could guide them to treatment, Mm -hmm. that could guide them to recovery homes, that can put them on medication immediately. Um, People who have the opportunity to be saved from an overdose also have the opportunity to recover and change their lives and become uh, productive members of society once again. Professor, what... what what needs to shift in order to make residential treatment centers more economically viable? 
So I, I think a, quite a few things have to shift, but residential treatment centers that provide evidence-based care are economically viable. I mean, Vana just alluded to how many dollars we're saving. When you get someone into residential treatment, they have something like five times less spending on health care in the future compared to what they would have done had they not actually gone into residential treatment. So in terms of um, you know, healthcare dollars, it makes sense, but then also in terms of how that person in recovery then becomes a productive member of the economy and they're able to give that. Th- it, once you're on your medication for opioid use disorder, you are more likely to get a job, you're more likely to hang on to it, and you're actually pumping more dollars into the economy. So from a, you know, does it make sense to treat the individual from an economic perspective, absolutely. But to make it viable for the treatment centers, mm-hmm. we have a huge supply problem right now. We've got a big supply problem. You can't get a bed if you want to. There aren't enough residential there treatment are centers. Not, um, uh, there aren't enough residential treatment centers, and then there aren't enough good ones. Okay? And so we're dealing with a really small supply. And so we need to make it more attractive for those types of centers to open up. And stay open. We've been talking about a lot of the, Vaughn and I have been talking about a lot of the treatment centers that have been shutting down recently Mm -hmm. in this area. And we have to put the policies in place with the financial incentives so that it's attractive for these places to stay open. Any policy solutions, Vana, that come to mind that you think could be created to address this issue? Absolutely. I mean, um, I am working with a great group of people right now called the Westside Heroin Opioid Task Force, who uh, this group brings together hospitals, um, the city uh, providers, uh, and we're working to get an overdose prevention site uh, on the west side of Chicago. In addition to that, um, I think all parts of the continuum of care should be funded as well. Um, there aren't enough recovery homes for the people who do make it to treatment and come out someplace for them to go that's safe so that they can continue that recovery process. Um, uh, my part- business partners and I are always encouraging others to open up recovery homes and get licensed by the state so that they can provide the care people need um, for them to stay mm-hmm. sober. Um, in terms of uh, policy, I think it's it's really important for our legislators to be able to look at the economics of this thing, opening additional facilities and yeah. uh, giving people the opportunity to recover uh, is a win for everybody. Well, you know, the city of Chicago recently announced that it's going to um, install Narcan mm-hmm. vending machines at the 95th Red Line station. Anything else you want to see cities like Chicago do? I think the Making Narcan widely available is a terrific first step for a couple reasons. First of all, it saves lives. And then secondly, I think it also helps. It sends a signal that preventing overdose is a community project. We all need to work together mm-hmm. on this. Other things that individuals or that policymakers in Chicago, not just at Chicago, but at the, the broader state level and then the federal level, we need to get rid of these discriminatory policies like the IMD exclusion that kind of formally stigmatize substance use disorder as something that isn't a medical condition when it truly is. And I think Vana 
spoke to one way to make that attractive to legislators, which is to say, um, you know, we we are saving all this money. This is a way for you guys to save money. I think also really helping Illinois and then Chicago understand what the face of opioid addiction looks like. It's not what you have in your head. Mm -hmm. It's not what you're picturing. And I think when you can appeal to legislators and let them know that it's their constituents that are dying, I think that can be really compelling. I've got just about 20 seconds left. Talk to the folks listening. What can they do? Uh, is Is it lobbying their state lawmakers? Is it the governor? Any absolutely. Suggestions? Lobbying is absolutely the way to go. And I think also um, holding um, residential treatment facilities accountable, holding your policymakers accountable for putting in place stuff that we know works. Yeah, I think it's changing perception. Educate yourselves, right? Um, understand what the face of opioid addiction looks like today. Everybody's yeah. been impacted in some way or another uh, and have an open mind about it and an open heart. We'll leave it there. That is Vanna Hernandez, Executive Director of Phoenix House. That's a long-term substance use recovery home here in Chicago. And Lindsay Allen, Health Economist and Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at Northwestern. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. This episode of Reset was produced by Andrew Merriweather, who edited the episode along with Dan Tucker. Hear more important stories like this by subscribing to our podcast. We release episodes every morning and afternoon, Monday through Friday, along with bonus episodes on Saturday. That's all for Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll talk to you this afternoon. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.